This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Book Practice, a Straits Times podcast in which we talk about books and the headlines and recommend you new reads. I'm Olivia Ho and I am joined today thanks to technology by my co-host Toe Wendy. Hello. Our last episode recorded during the coronavirus circuit breaker dealt with pandemic novels. And now the circuit breaker is over, but we still can't really go out. So we thought we'd go in the opposite direction because some people may be experiencing virus news fatigue and they're looking for avenues of escape. So we'll be talking about some of our favorite escapist reads. Escapism is, of course, very subjective. So Wenli, what would you consider a quintessentially escapist read? Well, that's a good question. Before we get to quintessentially escapist read, maybe I could start by talking about what I think an escapist read would be. And for me, it would, be, it would basically be something that allows me to escape from myself. Um, typically something involving adventure, intrigue, and something which you might not necessarily read for its literary merits. Which brings me to um, renowned author Dan Brown, um, famed oh, author yeah. of The Da Vinci Code, The Lost Symbol, Angels and Demons. Um, I think he needs no introduction, but for the <laughs> uninitiated, um, let's start with The Da Vinci Code, one of his most well-known novels, um, which came out back in 2003. So it starts off with a murder. A man is murdered in the Louvre in Paris, and this sets um, a Harvard professor by the name of Robert Langdon off on an adventure. And um, along the way, he joins forces with a French cryptologist, and together they sort through a series of riddles to solve an ancient mystery. So it's actually become quite fashionable um, for people to dislike Dan Brown. Okay. He's been described as the Anne Hathaway of authors. And I think quite a few of us might remember that widely shared Telegraph article, which came out a few years ago, which had the headline, Don't Make Fun of Renowned Dan Brown. And it was written in the style of Dan Brown's writing, or at least it was written in, as a parody of Dan Brown's writing style, um, which has been criticized for its um, redundancy and use of overwrought language and his tendency to preface every noun, every, every name of something with a kind of adjective or modifier. So, um, for example, the Telegraph author who was poking fun at Brown's writing um, described him as renowned author Dan Brown um, or a prosperous scribe, for example. Um, so when, when I read Dan Brown's books uh, qu- quite a few years ago, that didn't really leap out at me because I was so caught up in the adventure of it all. It was just a thrilling escapist read for me. But a few days ago, I decided to flip through the pages of The Da Vinci Code. And um, on page three, um, actually even in the prologue, um, the prologue of the, of the book begins with the line, renowned curator Jack Saunier, then <laughs> later in the book, we're introduced to, um, or at least he talks about physicist Leonardo Vetra. So all these things, I mean, the use of a handle before a name, this is commonplace in journalism, but you don't really see this so much in fiction. <laughs> so I guess that, that might be why lots of people um, took issue with this book, aside from the fact that it also has a lot of historical inaccuracies. And um, descriptions like... Um, the curator's eyes flew open, and another description of a man who is seen smirking calmly. So a lot of this doesn't quite stand up to scrutiny, but I think scrutiny maybe isn't the point here. We don't read it for its, we don't read him for his um, wonderful prose or his mastery of the English language. We read it because it's just an excellent form of escapist fiction. 
So I trashed Dan Brown in my review of Origin some years ago. <laughs> and I will say that, well, I think his writing style is ridiculous. He is very addictive to read. So I was like, this is terrible. This is terrible. It's 4 a.m. I'm still going. <laughs> the funny thing is, yeah, it's so, it's so easy to get hooked on one of his stories. Um, they are cinematic, gripping, real page tenors, but you would be hard-pressed to, to summarize the plot of any one of these page turners after you've read them. They are, they are quite unmemorable as well. It is very transporting. Um, so my mother is a great fan of Dan Brown, and so much so that when I was living in Scotland, uh, she made me take her to the Rosslyn Chapel, which is one of the key locations in Da Vinci Code. Uh, not to spoil it too much, but there's something to do with the Holy Grail and Mary Magdalene. And uh, we had to take a bus all the way to see this chapel. Just was pretty nice. Um, as chapels go, it's quite small, though. Mm. So my go-to escapist read since childhood has been the book have been the books of Diana Wynne Jones, and I got through one of the most stressful periods of my life, which is the A levels, by hiding in the bathroom and reading her books. Most of them are children's books, and they're portal fantasies. Uh, my favorite is Howl's Moving Castle which features this uh, young lady called Sophie Hatter. Uh, she's a milliner. She lives in a small town. She's the eldest of three sisters. And she's convinced this means that because she, you know, because of fairy tale trope, she will never have anything interesting happening in her life. But then she gets cursed by a vindictive witch and she's transformed into an elderly woman. So she goes to get her curse reversed by uh, keeping house for Howl, who is a melodramatic and allegedly heartless wizard who lives in a moving castle. The castle is powered by a fire demon, and it has a door that can open onto four locations whenever you turn the knob. So if you turn it one way, it opens into the capital city. You turn it another, it goes to Port Haven, and then you turn it another way. It goes to wherever the castle is actually physically located at the time because it walks around on you know its feet. And the fourth location is um, is Wales in our world because it's actually a separate world from our world. Diana Wynne Jones excels in these multiverse, uh, multi many universes stacked next to each other. And what I love about it is how it's so gently subversive of fairy tale tropes. It mm. just you know takes all these um, expectations, such as you know. Um, being the eldest sister, never as as opposed to being the youngest. Um, you know, are you the sisters and stepsisters? But nevertheless, they all get along really well. How, who is the the wizard in this case? He's said to be heartless, and he's a playboy, and uh, he's not actually. But at the same time, he's quite difficult to live with. And Sophie spends most of the book as a crone, but she's very efficient, and I love efficient characters. And how well, love efficient life. people in general. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, I have a great, I, you know, I adore competence. And Hal falls in love with, with her, even though she's, and, you know, she appears to be an old woman. He falls in love with her, not for her looks, but for her character and her common sense. And it's a children's book, but it's extremely well plotted. The central curse is based on the John Donne poem, Go and Catch a Falling Star, um, which I think is discussed done in earlier podcasts. And um, this is one of his... Um, more popular rhyme poems uh, and the things in the poem gradually become literal so it's i think it's go and catch a falling star get the child of mandrake root tell me where all false years are or who cleft the devil's foot and all these things like the mandrakes the mermaids singing the honest wind they all become literal and lifting the curse involves undermining the original poem which is kind of sexist and about how you will never find a woman who is true and fair 
So this book was turned into an acclaimed film by Hayao Miyazaki of Studio Ghibli. And I love Studio Ghibli, but even so, the book is still better. There's not a thing you can say about a lot of Ghibli films. So I would recommend this book for anyone who feels like they're stuck somewhere and they wish they could just turn the doorknob and open the door and be somewhere else altogether. It's a really wonderful read. And I came to this book a bit later in life than I think many of its, its core, um, much of its core fan base did. Um, and, and more recently, I tried borrowing, borrowing it again on um, the National Library's Overdrive um, and, and the ebook version of the book on the National Library's Overdrive portal. And it turns out that I'm number 137 on the wait list. So it seems like lots of people are craving um, fantasy fiction, escapist fiction at the moment. So one of the things people were saying that you should do, you know, at the start of this whole stay home business was to read classics that you might otherwise never have got around to reading. And people have started online book groups for the likes of Tolstoy's War and Peace, Middle March by George Eliot, um, yes. a favorite of yours, Wendy, <laughs> it has seen its audiobook sales go up by 30%, according to um, Penguin, who publishes it. So what is your idea of an escapist classic? There are many escapist classics. I think any, any book that doesn't remind you of your present reality could be an escapist classic. But um, if I had to name one, I guess it would be, at the moment, The Scarlet Pimpernel by Baroness Ortsy. So it's a piece of historical fiction set in the year 1792, during the early stages of the French Revolution. The hero of the novel is Sir Percy Blakeney, who is a foppish English lord. Um, so he seems he leads a double life. On the surface, he seems inept, foppish, but he is actually a hero um, who goes by the pseudonym the Scarlet Pimpernel. And what he does is he saves hapless aristocrats from the guillotine during the French Revolution. Um, Percy is married to Marguerite, who is a beautiful French exile who does not know her husband's true identity. And um, the chief antagonist in the book is Chauvela, a French agent who has been trying to hunt the Scarlet Pimpernel down. So the Scarlet Pimpernel is written in English by a displaced, was written in English by a displaced Hungarian noblewoman by the name of Baroness Ortzi at the turn of the 20th century. So the book came out in um, the early 1900s. I was quite impressed to learn that, uh, when I read this book several years ago that Baroness Ortzi only learned how to speak English at the age of 15. Like many people who are fans of The Scarlet Pimpernel, I came to the book by way of one of its film adaptations, specifically the 1982 one, starring Anthony Andrews, Jane Seymour, and uh, Young and handsome Ian McKellen as the villain. I think, Olivia, you're a fan of the 1934 adaptation, right, with Leslie Howard. Oh, I haven't actually seen that one, but I oh. was a fan of Leslie Howard. Of Leslie um, Howard. <laughs> because he has, you know, he's got such a beautiful nose. He's Leslie Howard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there are some discrepancies between, as usual, between the film adaptation and the book. Um, in the book, I think the real hero is really Marguerite um, Percy, um, a.k.a. the Scarlet Pimpernel. doesn't loom as large as he does in the, in the film adaptation. Um, it's known for this um, refrain, um, we seek him here, we seek him there. Um, the Frenchies seek him everywhere. Is he in heaven? Is he in hell? That damned elusive Pimpernel. So, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not a book I would really read for its literary merits or its depth. But, you know, you, you, you just, just reading it, you are whisked away into this whirlwind of adventure, intrigue and romance. So as far as escapist classics go, I guess, this, yeah, it's not a bad place to start. Let's call it Pimpernel. So swashbuckling. 
Speaking of French revolutions, um, the epic classic that I always recommend people read when they're free and no one ever listens to me, but maybe now they have the time, uh, Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Another book about the French Revolution. <laughs> Not the French Revolution, but a attempted oh, revolution. A attempted um, revolution. <laughs> in France. So most people will know this as the West End musical with, you know, people with fearsome sideburns and marching on the spot during one day more. But before Cameron Mackintosh got his hands on it, it was a 19th century epic of more than 1,400 pages. It's a positive brick. It's considered to be one of the greatest French novels ever written, uh, figuratively and literally. <laughs> so most people will know the basic plot. There's a man. Jean Valjean, he steals some bread, is sent to prison for 19 years, he breaks parole, is hunted by a dogged police inspector, steals candlestick from Bishop, is given more stuff by Bishop who forgives him. He becomes a wealthy businessman, he fails to help an unwed single mother who then dies. He decides instead to save her young daughter from amoral innkeepers. Many years pass, they move to Paris, his daughter gets a secret boyfriend, the boyfriend is involved in the June Rebellion but he survives, pretty much everyone else dies. So what I love about Les Mis is, is its panoramic sweep the sheer wealth of historical detail. And uh, I think therein lies the element of escapism that we are looking for. It's just completely vast, different world. And it is also beautifully written. Uh, to be sure, it is. it may seem from the plot description to be unrelentingly grim. It's about extremely wretched people, the wretched of the earth, as you know, they would say. Uh, some parts are very sad. I cried in public when I read, uh, I think, The Death of Gavroche. I was, you know, I was sitting at Amokyo MRT station next to a woman with a bunch of cabbages and I was just sobbing. But it is also often very funny, at least in the last three sections. It is endlessly diverting and actually it's incredibly uplifting in the way that it looks at love and how people strive to do good despite immense injustice. So at the core of it is this one man who is being given the chance to do good because someone else gave, someone else did good for him. And he's just repeatedly trying to do that over and over again, even though he's also a hunted fugitive and um, people and this other man is hunting him across across France. And all in all, it is a highly cathartic read in the way that I suppose very long Cantonese dra TV dramas are cathartic. Uh, it, is, I, it is also famously digressive. There are very long meandering chapters on religious orders, on the serious system of Paris, on Argo, which is the thief slang that uh, Thénardier and his people use. There are 19 chapters on the Battle of Waterloo, which are not entirely relevant to the plot. And that's real trudge, and that is why a lot of people give up on it. I remember recommending it to one friend, and I bought it for her for her birthday, and she was just going through it, and she was like, if I'm just reading about the Catholic Church, and if no one steals any bread soon, I'm going, I'm going to just give up. So Did she persist? I am sad. I don't think she has. Uh, yeah, I, I really wanted her to get to the, the parts where, the end where, you know, my favorite parts are, most people's favorite parts are the, the Les Amis, the, the Friends of the ABC, which is the revolutionary group that's tried to start the June Rebellion. Uh, and they're just so much fun, all these young people. And, but in order to get there, you have to get through about like three other sections of, of a lot of history. And I will say that the digressions are important to the structure of the novel as a historic panorama. And 
the way that Hugo wants to present it as something that's not necessarily linear or fixed in scope. It's sort of like reading, it's the experience of Wikipedia, like history as Wikipedia. If you had to read all of the links in the order of while you were reading the main page. But actually, you can skip ahead. This is, I'm sure a lot of purists will find it blasphemous. You can skip ahead and still stay abreast of the plot. And you get to the really good bits at the end. Uh, so sad, but so, so thrilling, you know. So it's really a microcosm of the world in just over a thousand pages. So what he wanted to do, so Hugo writes this in the preface. He says, so long as there shall exist, by reason of law and custom, a social condemnation which in the midst of civilization artificially creates a hell on earth and complicates of human fatality a destiny that is divine, so long as the three problems of the century, the degradation of man by the exploitation of his labor, the ruin of women by starvation, and the atrophy of childhood by physical and spiritual night are not solved, so long as in certain regions social asphyxia shall still be possible. In other words, and from a still broader point of view, so long as ignorance and misery remain on earth, there should still be a need for books such as this. So that's history. On to something newer. So what are some more recent escapist reads we can look at? So one book I've been reading recently um, was Sophia and the Utopian Machine by Singaporean author Judith Huang. So this is a 2018 book about a 15-year-old girl um, called Sophia, who lives in what looks to be 22nd century Singapore. Um, and this is a society that has been vertically stratified into the canopies, the mid-levels, and the voids. Um, and Sophia belongs to this middle zone called the mid-levels. Um, her mother is a scientist at Biopolis um, and was one of the people who worked on this thing called the Utopia machine. And she worked on this machine with her husband, who, is, um, who has been absent for many years. So one day, um, Sophia manages to open this um, utopia machine, and this leads her into a utopian world within a world in which she is the goddess. Um, shortly after she opens the machine, Sophia's mother is arrested, and Sophia has to go on the run from the authorities. And she heads down into the voids and eventually ends up in Pulau Ubin, which in this story turns out to be the outpost of the resistance. So I thought it was a pretty enjoyable read. I enjoyed the ride it took me on. It was very breezy. I guess some people would describe it as young adult fiction, um, but it's mm. also quite hard to pigeonhole um, the book. And um, some of the, even though I felt some of the ideas could have been fleshed out more, I think it was interesting um, looking at what Huang was doing in terms of, of addressing some of the issues in society, such as social inequality and elitism. So there were there was there were some musings on social stratification in the in the book. Um, in one of the early chapters, we see um, we're we're introduced to Julian Lee, who turns out to be the son of the most powerful person in the country. He lives in a bubble dome in the canopies on top of the Astana, and he has a crush on Sophia. And he later later on, later on he tells her about the Prism Club, which is an elite club for top leaders, and he says. The philosophy of the Prism Club is that in order for there to be beauty and harmony, you must split the beam of light into its constituent colours. That's how you get a rainbow of diversity. The colours each separated from each other. Then he goes on. It just means that it is the role of governance to ensure that the levels remain distinct and each contributes in its own way. And we believe that further stratification is the key to our competitiveness. So this book was uh, shortlisted for the Epigram Books Fiction Prize. It didn't win. And it was marketed as a young adult, which I've always thought did it 
kind of a disservice because there are a lot of ideas in it that might not be entirely apparent to the, the young adult reader, but which do bear further looking into. Um, it came out in the same year as This Is What Inequality Looks Like by sociologist mm. Tio Yo Yen. And it's quite interesting to see the parallels between that nonfiction book of essays and this young adult fantasy sci-fi dystopia jaunt, so to speak. It does look at well, it's a bit things. Faster, it went a bit faster than the jaunt. <laughs> yeah, but it it does um it does look at actually some quite hefty issues like social stratification. There's a literal stratification of society in this case, uh, inequality, elitism, and also detentions without trial. So that's one of the I think the darker elements that the book goes into. Yeah. But at the same time, it has this mythological aspect which I really loved. Yeah, I really love that description of, I really loved reading about that tale of um, things as Heizit and Leela, who belong to the utopian world in the book. Um, it's a little story about a village boy who wins the hand of the village chief's daughter by catching more jeweled crabs than anyone else can. And I just love the way it was, it was described. She's got a real knack for creating this sense of wonder that I would you know, love to see fleshed out more in later books. Speaking of wondering, there's another recent book that I'd like to recommend. It's the Wandering by Intan Paramadita. She's this Indonesian author, and this is her first her debut novel to be translated into English. It was published in originally as Genta Yangan in Indonesian in 2017. So this is a choose-your-own-adventure novel in which you get a pair of red shoes from the devil, and it they take you wherever you want to go. So I don't know if you know the choose-your-own-adventure format. It was very popular in the 1980s and the 1990s. It's children's books. And there are a second-person narrative in which you, the reader, make choices about the storyline and flip to the corresponding page. So let's say, for instance, uh, if you choose to go ahead to Berlin, turn to page 37. And if you choose to go back and look for the shoes, turn to page 49. Oh, I miss those books. But this is very much an adult version. It's very dark. It's twisty. It's very feminist. Um, it's feminist, quite subversive. And it really puts the lust in wanderlust because the, the narrator is this bored young woman in Jakarta and she starts a demonic love affair with the devil. And he's the one who gives her the pair of red shoes to fulfill her wanderlust. And then she wakes up and she's in a taxi in New York en route to the airport and uh, she she loses a shoe, and that's when she gets the first set of choices, which is to, uh, which are to stay and explore the city, make a police report, or continue on to Berlin. And there are actually fifteen different endings, which I think I managed to get all of them except one in one afternoon. Uh, the storylines they straddle a variety of genres. They get gothic horror. There's a whole noirish riff on Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo and set to San Francisco. And uh, at some points, you can also go back to Indonesia. And uh, parts of the storylines also look at the history of communism in Indonesia. I'm not entirely thrilled by the writing style. I found it a bit overwrought, possibly due to translation issues, slightly clunky. But it's, I think it's a very inventive take on the format. And it's extremely diverting to try and get all of the 15 endings and also to keep looking back and see how they link to one another. And that's all we have time for today, but we wish you the happiest of wanderings through these bookish worlds. Once again, thank you for listening to us and we bid you stay home and stay safe. We'll catch you next time.
That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.